and unsurpassed penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truth of the tathagata's word good morning everyone well it's always good to start out with a mistake uh our practice our life is one continuous mistake i tried to type out this poem that i wanted to share with you and zoom frustrated me so i gave up anyhow it's a really uh it's a bright very sunny crisp uh early winter morning here in berkeley uh and this is our first saturday talk of uh, 2022, and it's also uh, just one day past the one-year anniversary of Sojin Roshi's death. So in our usual way of thinking, Sojin Roshi died at home January 7th, 2021. And as most of you know, for 53 years, uh, he cultivated the empty field of Zazen here at Berkeley Zen Center. He was widely respected and deeply loved, certainly by those of us here in his home Sangha. Uh, by many people that he practiced with uh, at San Francisco Zen centers, the various centers and uh, other places that he went and other places that uh, his teachings, whether by lectures or by printed material reached. And we see that because we, yesterday at the memorial service, we had, uh, we had students from India, we had, we had a student from Iran, there were people in Europe who wanted to attend, but it was literally the middle of the night there. Uh, and I think that all of us treasured his warm, ordinary way. And uh, Sojin's emphasis that he learned from his teachers on no gaining idea, uh, just an unswerving commitment to Zazen and to the community of practitioners, which was also something he learned from Suzuki Roshi and his other early teachers. So yesterday we had a one year memorial, our first annual memorial uh, where people could address Sojin, talk to him, talk about him. And I shared a poem that I had written earlier in the week. Uh, and I'd like to read it again this morning and, and talk about it and talk about its setting perhaps a bit. This is what I tried to type out. Um, it's called The White Dragon's Relics. 
Like John Yuan of the Great Tang, I foolishly search for the relics of our late master in ashes and dreams, knowing they are not hidden there. Such relics cannot be found in billowing waves and scudding clouds, but in my heart and mind, where Sharira pearls are plentiful. When my eyes are open, these relics, words and deeds, shine like dragon's teeth lying on the bare ground of Zazen, where any of us may pick them up. With upright posture and a free mind, I can be such a relic. So that's the poem. This poem references a very well-known uh, koan. Uh, it's case 55 in the Blue Cliff Record, which is a 12th century uh, Chinese collection of uh, koans or teaching stories. And its title, title we use in uh, English is called Dawu's Condolence Call. Uh, and the turning question of this con is where the student asks the teacher about the body in the coffin, alive or dead? And his teacher won't say. And his subsequent teacher won't say. Over the years, I've given several talks about this koan, and so has Sojin Roshi. In fact, he used it in a talk that he gave on November 7th, 2020, two months to the day before he died. Uh, and at that point, his illness was quite evident to all of us. So given that evidence, he had uh, offered to speak about birth and death to all of us, to his students. So I'm going to come back to my poem in a moment, but I want to share with you uh, the koan. So as I said, this koan uh, seems to address the problem of birth and death. Uh, and uh, Sojin says, there's a koan in the Blue Cliff record, Dawu's condolence call. I call this an old war horse. We drag out the old war horse and mount up again. We actually can't discuss it too many times because it may be our most important koan. Uh, that's what he said. And here is the main subject. I'm going to read you the text of the koan here. Dawu and his disciple Janyuan went to a house to make a condolence call. Uh, so to adds, this is the 8th century, by the way. In order to express sympathy in those days, 
Zen monks did not do funeral services. They just went to visit the deceased uh, and the, the family to acknowledge the deceased. So they get to this house and they're in the presence of the family. And Chen Yuan hit the coffin and said, alive or dead? Chen Yuan brought up the great question. Dawu said, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Chen Yuan said, why won't you say? Dawu said, I won't say. So halfway back, as they were returning to the temple, Chen said, tell me right away, teacher. If you don't tell me, I'm going to hit you. Uh, Dawu said, you may hit him, you may hit me, but I won't say. So Chen Yuan hit him. These guys are, they were, you could say in our, in our, in our conventional parlance, they didn't pull any punches in those days. Uh, so he hit him in time, but he never got an answer. In time, Dawu died and Jin Yuan went to study with Master Shishuang. He told Shishuang about his exchange with Dawu and asked what was his point of view. Shishuang said, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Chen said, why won't you say? And Shishuang just said, I won't say, I won't say. At these words, Jin Yuan had an insight. So a little bit of light. We don't know how much. Sometimes uh, the koans are reticent about uh, describing the, the depth of somebody's awakening. But it's also true that that depth varies. So it might've been a little bit of light. It might've been uh, a lot of light, a great awakening. So then the story flashes forward. Uh, and this, this gets to the point that I bring up in my poem. Later, Jun Yuan carrying a hoe went up and down in the lecture hall as if he were searching for something. So, you know, he's in the, he's in the lecture hall uh, carrying a hoe going back and forth. Shishuang said, what are you doing? Jin Yuan said, I'm searching for the relics of our dead teacher. Shishuang said, limitless expanse of mighty roaring waves, foaming waves wash the sky. What relic of the deceased teacher do you seek?
So returning to my poem, the center of this poem turns on the image of relic, uh, which is uh, the word for it in uh, Sanskrit is sharira, which is may not be something that you're familiar with. Uh, so this is mentioned in the case as Chinyuan says that he's looking for the relics and, but here I'm speaking about us and Soju Roshi. So I say, such relics can't be found in billowing waves and scudding clouds, but in my heart and mind where Shavira pearls are plentiful. So let me say something about Sharira, uh, because these are these are precious, uh, they're precious items in uh, Buddhist tradition. Sharira refers to Buddhist relics, uh, although you also find uh, reference to them in in other. Uh, in other traditions, in Catholic traditions, in Eastern Orthodox traditions, where uh, they would have a, they would find one of these relics or a finger bone or a, uh, you know, another piece of bone from the body of a saint. Uh, and in Buddhist terms, what they refer to are these strangely pearl-like objects that one can find when one sifts through the ashes uh, after cremation. Uh, and they're particularly, they seem to be plentiful in the uh, remains of uh, Buddhist masters. So uh, if you go to the San Francisco Buddhist temple, which is the Jodo Shinshu temple on, I think it's on Bush Street uh, in San Francisco, big temple. And on the roof, they have a stupa. And in that stupa, they have purportedly relics from uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. After, after the Buddha died, his relics were divided into, for some reason I'm thinking something like 17 portions. I could be wrong about that number, but they were divided and distributed across India. And some small portion of relics was given to the San Francisco Buddhist church um, from, uh, the temple in Bodhgaya, uh, the Buddhist temple in Bodhgaya. Uh, so whether these are actually the relics or not, I don't know. Uh, I once went to Sri Lanka and in the, in the small city of Kandy, um, they have the temple of the tooth and uh, they purportedly have 
uh, a tooth of Shakyamuni Buddha. And I went to pay my respects. And you know what you, and it was a long line. And you know what you get to see is uh, box that holds the box that holds the box that holds the box that maybe holds the tooth. Uh, that's as close as I got to it, you know, but supposedly if you visit your within the magic aura of the Buddha's tooth. It's uh, wonderful. So, but these Sharira are, uh, they seem to be actual things. They, they look a little like a, a crystal or a bead-like object and you can see images of them online. Uh, and they're very important since they seemingly embody the spiritual knowledge or teachings, the realizations of these spiritual masters. And also they're taken as evidence of their mastery that, you know, sifting through the ashes and finding the Sharira, it's like uh, confirmation of their mastery. Uh, and so you'll find them, you know, when, when they've been accumulated, you'll find them in a, a small golden urn or a stupa-like structure uh, that is often sitting within uh, the image of that, of that Buddha or that master. And it's kind of a related practice uh, at, a, at a Buddhist funeral. Uh, I don't know how much it's done these days, uh, but after the, the cremation, you know, when we, when we see cremation, uh, what we receive usually is a package of pretty much ground up ashes, ground up, but, but you know, those are, those have already been processed to some degree um, because it doesn't come out so neat, you know, when, when after cremation, there certainly are ashes, but there also are chunks of bone, etc. And so, um, there's a, uh, a ritual in Japan, Japanese funerary rites called uh, Katsuage, where relatives pick the bones out of the ashes and transfer them to the funerary urn using chopsticks uh, with two relatives holding the bone together, which is very unusual two relatives holding uh, chopsticks together. Uh, and so they're also, in a Buddhist funeral, you're also looking for these sharira. So Jinyuan is, tells Shishuang, he's, He's looking for the relics of his late teacher. And uh, my sense is that 
uh, he's offering he's offering us a, te a teaching. He's doing us a favor by by playing, knowing very well that uh, he's not going to find the relics by running a hole across the Dharma hall. I mean, it's like just you can the you can imagine, you know, if we took a broom or a hole in the zendo and look for Sojin's rel relics, uh, I don't think there's any of us that would be expecting to find them there. So where are they? Where are Sojin's relics? think that the relics are in his words. They're in the images and memories that we have. Uh, memories of things that he said to us. Memories of, of simple, simply seeing how he moved. You know, for me, I, I said yesterday, uh, just like when I'm up in my office, up in the attic, uh, my ear is always listening for the sound of his car door shutting. Uh, or the door to to the office where I'm sitting now, which always had a little he tended to shut it with a little slam. Uh, and so I'm listening for that, even though I know that I'm not likely to hear it. Uh, every now and then I'll hear a door, car door close, you know, sort of right outside the house. And I'll, I'll for a moment, I'll think it's him. Or I'll go to my kitchen window and look down at the office here. And for a moment, uh, just think, oh, maybe the blinds are open. And maybe he's there. So I could come down and just uh, talk with him. These are these are relics, these are sharira that live in my mind. And or they live in some place in my body. And I imagine that this is true for many of you. And also it's not just true for Sojin. It's true for all the people that we may have loved in our life who are gone. A certain piece of music will come on and we will, it will bring them completely to life. 
So I think this is in part what uh, what Jinyuan was playing at was not, you know, he knew very well that the relics that we're looking for are not something external. They're not some precious remains of a teacher or a loved one. Um, like everything else in our practice, we're turned to look inward. Where are these relics in ourselves? But it's an interesting process. Um, I hope to talk more about this in, in the next few months, but um, for a while I've been reading uh, the writings and the uh, teachings of uh, Shinran, who was almost a contemporary of Dogen uh, and is the founder of Shin Buddhism, uh, of Joro Shinshu, uh, which, is the, which is the largest Buddhist sect in Japan. And Soto is the second largest. Uh, and uh, it's a very wonderful and subtle teaching. Uh, tends to be characterized as other power. And you know, Japanese Buddhism is kind of roughly divided into uh, two ways of approaching Buddhism. Uh, there's the self-power schools and the other power schools. And Zen is nominally a self-power school. And Shin Buddhism is nominally another power school where basically other power means we can't get there on our own. We awaken because of the generosity of Buddhas and ancestors who are sharing uh, Buddha nature with us. From my perspective, these, this is a completely pointless distinction uh, that I can't see how to separate self-power and other power. Dogen says in Genjo Koan, when the 10,000 things come forth and actualize themselves, this is enlightenment. So that's, that's other power. That's the 10,000 things coming forward. And we are one of those 10,000 things. And so we are awakened with them. And if you look at uh, 
if you look at our practice, if you look at, if I look at my life and probably this applies for many of us, that there's something that happened, something we heard, something we read that led us to think, oh, maybe I should come and learn about practicing Zen. Uh, and for many of us, uh, this was far outside perhaps the cultural environment that we grew up in. Uh, there was no Zen in Great Neck, New York, where I grew up in. <laughs> it just, it wasn't there. And yet, when I read Chinese and Japanese poetry, even in high school, there was something in me that resonated with it. So that, what was that? Is that self-power? Is that other power? You know, each of us had to, at some point, walk through the gate here to find the practice. And, you know, we had to walk through literally on our own two legs. So there was some self-power involved in that. But how we came to do that is very mysterious. That's the giving of of Buddha nature to us that awakens us, that, that resonates. The Buddha nature uh, vibrates on the same wavelength as something within us. And I think that's what we're talking about when we speak about these relics. Uh, that something in, something that we received from Sojin, from his generosity, from Suzuki Roshi, from all the Buddha ancestors, uh, you could see the Sharira as a seed. And those seeds are sown widely and they learn, they land on our fertile innermost soil and germinate. If the soil wasn't there, they wouldn't germinate. That the soil is there is just another gift that we've been given. But perhaps that gift wouldn't be actualized fully if the seed hadn't been planted, if the sharira didn't exist. I don't know what I don't know what would have happened in my life if I hadn't come here and met Sojin Roshi. Certainly I would not be talking to you. 
I don't know what I would, would have been doing. I don't even really know if I would be alive. So when we receive these relics and we find them within ourselves, uh, then we have the opportunity to share them. I'm reminded of, uh, but I guess it was Ross's comment yesterday about Sojin uh, telling people uh, that you, you know, if you've given, you may have given me a gift, but don't be surprised or don't be upset if uh, you see that I've given that gift to someone else. Well, that's true of it's not just true of teapots or pieces of calligraphy or clothing, but it's actually true of the teachings themselves. But in the giving of that gift, in the finding of these relics, I don't think we should put them in a stupa on the altar in our home or in our temple. We should give them away and let them mysteriously resonate with anyone else who encounters them. So fundamentally, the relic, the relics that are left to us just the practice of zazen, this ordinary, no gaining mind. Uh, and we cherish that, not by enshrining it on an altar, but by doing it and making it as widely available as we can. Somebody spoke to me yesterday, uh, a member who is who has moved away and they've moved to a place where uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, any nearby Zen. So I said, you know, well, why don't you start a sitting group? Uh, just, you know how to do this. You've been doing this for long enough. And I'll help you. Other people will help you. Uh, so this is how we don't hold on to the relics for ourselves. We give them away. We keep the gift in circulation.
So you can't say I don't think alive or dead. is such a relevant question. Just alive, alive. Which is not to say we don't grieve the loss of Sojin or the loss of other loved ones. And we wish they were still around, but we have the possibility of really valuing their life in us. And the responsibility of sharing that as widely as we can. At the end of the koan, uh, there's a verse by Secho. Uh, he says, the golden relics exist. The gold, the golden, yeah, the golden relics exist. They still exist now. Foaming waves wash the sky. Where can you put them? Nowhere. The single sandal returned to India and is lost forever. So the single sandal, uh, just to to explain that a little, uh, when uh, in the in the Tang Dynasty, in the last stage of his life, Bodhidharma decided to walk back to India, and uh, the Chinese uh, functionary Song Yun said to have seen him while walking through the Pamir mountains, uh, holding a single sandal. And uh, he asked Bodhidharma where he was going. And Bodhidharma said, I'm going home. Uh, when asked why he was holding the shoe, Bodhidharma answered, you will know when you reach Shaolin Monastery but don't mention that you saw me or you will meet with disaster. Uh, so Song Yun goes back to the palace and he tells the emperor that he had seen Bodhidharma along the way. And the emperor said, uh, Bodhidharma is already dead and he's buried at Shaolin. 
and he had the minister arrested. So this is the disaster. Uh, uh, and he checked with Shaolin Monastery and the monks said the Bodhidharma had been buried, uh, had been dead and buried behind the temple. Uh, but they went and they exhumed the grave. And what they found was there was Bodhidharma in the grave, but he was only wearing one sandal. Uh, and the monk said, master has gone back home and they bowed three times. Uh, so was he in the grave? Was he walking in the mountains? Is he alive or dead? This is placing the koan on top of another koan. And I think this is what we can ask ourselves about, we can ask ourselves about Sojin Roshi today and tomorrow and for all our days to come. So with that, I'm going to end and uh, I will turn it over to Heiko to invite people to share thoughts or ask questions. We have a little time, so thank you. We have a question from Lori, please Lori, go ahead. Hi, good morning, good morning everybody. Um, for some reason, this time when you told the story of the hoe walking back and forth with the hoe, um, was it, or whatever it was, rake hoe, whatever it was, I heard it like I and I I know I I wonder what you think of this. I heard it like sort of like the polishing the tile, like he was saying to the students in some way, what you're doing, whatever they were doing is the equivalent of looking for the sharira by taking a rake around the zendo you know i don't know what they were doing but um that's kind of how i heard it you know like like this is this is what you're doing basically maybe looking for it in the words or looking for it in the forms or i don't know what but i wonder what you thought about that i i think that i yeah i think that's right i think that his doing that was was demonstrative uh and you know he was sharing something uh that was going to be seen and inquired about and he knew that at that point i think that he i i guess i'd like to think he understood that the relics were not external and that it's not, it's not just, it's, there's not some, some externalization of devotion that is going to save us. Uh, but that the, they're, they're right there for everyone to see. So I think that's right. I think it was a teaching. Thank you, Laurie. Anyone else? We have a comment in the chat, which I'll read 
from Matt saying, it's good to start with a mistake. Our life is one continuous mistake. Thank you so much for that at the beginning of your talk. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Uh, the, the interesting thing uh, at the start, it was just, uh, I'm not so, uh, I'm not all that equanimous, you know, it pissed me off that I made a mistake and then I, I couldn't erase it and it was frustrating and just, you know, and then very quickly I thought, well, that's the way it is. And so, uh, how do, you know, what can I learn from this? You know, so if I made a mistake, this mistake, so what? Nobody's damaged by this. Nobody's hurt. Just my feelings of competence, which are relatively thin anyway. So thank you. Thank you for that, Matt. Nick, uh, please go ahead with your question. Thanks for your talk, uh, Hazan. The the, uh, the story of Bodhidharma's uh, sandal uh, really struck me in the context of that that koan and in, in thinking about Sojin's uh, absence, presence, and uh, loss of others uh, in my life. I think there's a a kind of a doubleness that the sandal story points to that Bodhidharma was both in his grave and still walking. And that the, the image of the two sandals, it seems to imply that there's a potential for joining for the sandals to be reunited. And uh, I, I, I find this in, uh, in loss of uh, people that there's a, a kind of a fixed image of who the person is or was that has a life of its own and but also the the person as you said is is now within us the and there there's a process that is unfolding of how we express that presence of them in us that is mysterious and and the the two maybe do you think the two can come together well um first of all let me just point you towards another koan which you may know uh seijo and her soul are separated yeah uh, someone can write that Sejo and her soul are separated uh, it's it's a it's a folk tale uh, Japanese folk tale about a young woman who uh, well I don't have to tell the story uh, but it's the same kind of thing which one is the real the punchline of the story is which one is the real Sejo the one that is dead in the grave or the one that married and had three children and went off to live a life uh, and they encounter each other. But just, you know, I'm thinking about 
all the people that we love and all the people that we've lost are complex and they're not one-sided and they're not all everything that everything that Sojin did was not necessarily an expression of wisdom nor is this true of of any of the teachers that that I've met they were human um but I think that the Sharira to extend this a little further the Sharira is purified by fire so what's left is something shining and powerful. So what's what's left of someone that we love, uh, you know, if we remember, we can remember the good things they did and maybe the not so good things or stupid things that they did. But what really remains and lives in us is what we can really learn and what they've given us uh, and that's a wonderful gift. And it's, it's something that has been, it's gone through the flames, right? And uh, so I hadn't thought about that, but that's, that's what your comment brings to mind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, we now have a question from uh, Barbara Joan and Jeff. Despite our three names, we don't speak as one. I'm, I'm the questioner and I get to have two names. Happy New Year. Thank you Happy so year. much. Thank you for your interesting and, and broad talk. It brought up many thoughts and questions for me. Um, and one thing I was thinking is that as you said, the relic should not just be put in the temple or in the home or kept. But I was thinking that the relics in my life, I, I tend to keep things and I'm, I symbolize a lot. I'm also a poet. And uh, that in, in a way, these relics from both from my own personal past, my physical past, and also from the people who have died, um, whether they're photographs of them or things that they gifted to me before, you know, in life, that those are like the bell that bring me back to the, the lesson of the present moment. So, yeah. When, when you were talking about the pearls, I actually I'll share this a little bit bizarre, but I have a little box of all of my baby teeth and uh, and I've kept it. And I was when you were talking about the the Buddha's tooth, I thought, well, why do I still have those? And then what's going to happen to them when I'm no longer here? Like, who wants my baby teeth? Like, do I pass them one to each kid or something? Like, how many are that. there? I could. You could um, do that. They might really appreciate that. But yeah, or not. Or, or they also <laughs> might think, what am I going to do with this? 
But I think there was, then I thought, well, what is that relic in my life? And so the symbol offers the, the new teaching. So it's not just the tooth that I lost and grew up and not just the gums, but the, and the memory of the moment, but right. also who I am now and who I think I'll be in the future. So I thought, uh, so thank you for offering that kind of resonance that goes backwards and forwards and the reminder that, that these relics are not just the idealized memory, but the teaching as it evolves yeah. with, with us. Thank you. Well, you know, from just what you were saying about baby teeth, and I used to have some of those myself. Um, the other thing that I haven't discussed to the single sandal is uh, there also was a, I guess in the in the 30s or 40s, you know, for people who could afford it, uh, you would make bronze, you would bronze baby shoes. Yeah. And I have my my father's bronzed baby shoe. Uh, and, you know, it's like, what does this mean to me? I don't think it necessarily means anything to my children, but to me, it's like, it's a reminder of the whole passage of life and that he was once this beautiful baby boy. And now he's, you know, uh, he's ashes. I, you know, I deposited his ashes in the Gulf Stream. So yeah, we make, we are meaning making mechanisms. And uh, that's, that's what we do. That's, it's a wonderful thing. Well, there's a few, uh, so I'm gonna take these, there's three more questions, hands that I see, and I'll take those, and then I think we'll have to end. Okay, thank you, Barbara. Um, Ken, please go ahead. Hi, it's actually me. Okay, um, hi. Thank you, Hassan. Uh, wonderful to hear your talk. Um, I was thinking um, that koan of alive or dead, um, always resonates with me, not always pleasantly, but always resonates. And the thought that came to me, not sure from where, was, you know, is it that um, we don't know, we can't know if someone is alive or dead, um, in part because it's our moment to moment perception and experience of them and their relics and um, and perhaps even a choice that we make in a way too, which reminded me of the um, thing that people say that uh, people live on in our memories. So beautiful and kind of terrifying in terms of the responsibility. Um, and I just wondered what you thought of that. Ask me the question again. I'm not quite sure where the question is there. Um, in terms of, is it that, or, or, or could it be that we can't know if someone is alive or dead because it's in part our perception and perhaps our choice around these relics and things that they have 
bequeathed us. Well, so let me go to what, what uh, just a, a little piece of what Sojin said in his in his talk. Uh, he says, I want to say something about birth and death. I don't use the term life and death. I use the term birth and death. Birth and death are two sides of the coin of life. Within birth, there is death. Within death, there is birth. It can't be just one way. So every moment is a moment of birth. Every moment is a moment of death. Birth and death are two dynamics of life. Life itself is still. Life doesn't change. So this is throwing it back at you, okay? <laughs> let you know what I figure out. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Uh, Nathan, please go ahead. Thank you, Hazan. Um, my question is, uh, are there are there bad pearls? Um, you know, I, for broadening things out, thinking about what we pass on what we receive from other people. You know, I walk my daughter to school every day with the ghosts of my parents and my parents aren't even dead yet. You know, I have this terrible fear of being late and this, this sense, I, I don't really care if my daughter is late for school or not, but I march her up the hill with this sense of anxiety that, you know, it's terrible to be late. And I watch myself um, doing this and with some sort of ambivalence. Um, so uh, how do we how do we understand the, the things that we pass on and um, or have received um, that maybe aren't gems? I think that's um, seems to me you're given uh, you're given a teaching to reckon with every morning. And uh, someday, perhaps, you will let go of that anxiety. Uh, you know, these are things that you may have, you may think you have learned from your parents, but it's yours now. And so you have to, you know, it's good to work on that yourself, however you can, or to allow yourself to be uh, enlightened by the Buddhas and let go of that anxiety. Uh, but uh, what your parents gave you is something for you to work on. So that, that's a gift, that's a gift from them to you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. Uh, Ross, please go ahead for the last question today. Thank you. Good morning, Hosan. Morning. I really enjoyed the composite quality of your lecture today. You drew on a lot of different things. They kind of one co on top of another. 
and a lot of stories. And I want to just pick out one piece, which was your comment around uh, sometimes Sojin's um, expression wasn't coming from wisdom or wasn't so wise. And I'd like to know what you think about um, in our practice, wisdom isn't thought of as something that's smart or uh, right versus wrong, but it's actually wisdom of emptiness. And in your exchange with Nick around the fire that refines things and clarifies things, I'm wondering if we can look at uh, Sojin's uh, expression, which was maybe sometimes mistaken, uh, was refined in the form of our dialogue and looking at it and examining it. And it's a different way of looking at wisdom. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that that's akin to what uh, Nathan and I were just talking about. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, I think that his teaching and Suzuki Roshi's teaching, Suzuki Roshi said, find out for yourself. Uh, and so one has to make that decision, but I, but I deeply believe in the, in the dialogical process in just in, uh, and the, but that dialogue is often it's in words, but not necessarily in words. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, there were, there, there were times when there were difficulties between myself and Sojin that um, just weren't going to get worked out in, in words, but they got worked out in actions. Uh, like, oh, let's go take a walk. Uh, that's also dialogue, dialogical, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just, it's returning, the dialogue is just a way of returning to the actual relationship. And the relationship is not, uh, the relationship is beyond right and wrong. It is, and returning to silence and you have to say something. Right. Yeah. Is it just, you, you may have to say something, but the other person doesn't have to accept it. That's true. Yeah. And then, you know, it's important for us to know that and, and accept, accept that. Uh, there are things that I feel I have to say, but the other person is not obligated to, to agree or understand. And the same thing is true of them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.